let's dive into the prophets. Let's start off by discussing this question regarding how the prophets, how were the prophets used of God at watershed moments in the history of the Old Testament and New Testament church. Okay, so moments of uh, sin and moments of great hope. What else? The law and the new covenant, okay. What else? Yeah, speak or act out the words of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What had happened or what was going to happen, you know, Ezekiel shaving his head and parting up his, his beard and his hair into different parts and sending it out through the kingdom to symbolize the exile. I love Ezekiel. I want to preach through Ezekiel sometime. Anyone else? That's right. So in the New Testament, referring back to the prophets, that this is a fulfillment, right? You think about the sermon on the day of Pentecost and Peter saying, what? This is that which was spoken of by whom? Joel, the prophet in Joel chapter 2. Yeah, good. Let's look at a brief survey here regarding the biblical, historical, and redemptive setting of the prophets. This is in O. Palmer Robertson's introduction. I think it's very helpful. Uh, he gives a brief survey. In the pattern of Scripture, the great saving events in Israel's history that first brought the nation into being were recorded so that posterity could understand their significance. So just imagine that, that you are uh, uh, 20 years old, you are in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, and Moses is spending all his time either in the tent of meeting with God or sitting around writing. And then he begins to share the story with you. The story is that although every person that you've ever known in your family was a slave, your parents were a slave, your grandparents were a slave, your great-grandparents were a slave, as far back as your family could recall, Although all of them were slaves, you're actually not from a line of slaves. You're actually from a, a royal line of patriarchs, of men like Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Noah and Adam, who was created by God. That's your family line. That's your family lineage. And so what has happened uh, with the recording of the law in part is to preserve for future generations to instruct the current generation under the leadership of Moses in the wilderness the story of where they came from and uh, how God saved them that they might understand its significance for the future. 
The Exodus was not merely a dramatic deliverance of a people from slavery, but it was a redemptive act by God. God wasn't just saving the Israelites out of slavery for 400 years. He did that. But the act itself was not just so that they could be free. God did that to redeem them and bring them to himself. As such, the Ten Commandments were not merely an improvement of moral standards in the culture around them. The Ten Commandments was God entering into covenant with God's people, sealed in blood, covenant ratified with God and with his people. God taking unto himself a people. Fast forward to the Davidic covenant, and the Davidic covenant is the merger of two houses. King David says, I want to build a house for God. And God says, that's funny, I'm going to build you a house. And your house is going to endure forever, and your son is going to build my house, and there's going to be a merger of these two houses. And your son, David, is going to sit on the throne of this united house for all eternity. That's the Davidic promise. That's the Davidic covenant. O. Palmer Robertson says, The simultaneous establishment of David's throne and God's throne in Jerusalem marked the highest point of the realization of God's purposes in the history of Israel. When you go and you read what Solomon did, the building of his own palace, the building of the temple, the consecrating and the dedicating of that temple, the temple being inhabited by the presence of God and the great blessing and the wisdom of Solomon and the wealth. I mean, Solomon is described in grand detail. His, his renown is known so far and wide that even the nations come to see Solomon's kingdom because they have become a light for the nations. Does that sound like the fulfillment of anything, right? That's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, in part, that through Abraham's offspring, they would be a light to the Gentiles. And even King Solomon, what does he have in his kingdom? He has a zoo. Isn't that interesting? He spends time with his zoo all these animals when you go in and read what why the inclusion of that detail because he's a kind of adam whom god had given the responsibility and the authority to name and to steward all the animals does that make sense so it is the apex of israel's history this high point led to the inspired writings of israel's poets so what we see in the Psalms is a way for God's people to be properly led in worship. And so, O. Palmer Robertson asked the question in the introduction, if all that has happened, God's redeemed a people for himself, he's established his throne in Jerusalem, um, and there is established worship, what is left for God's people? What's left? And here's his answer, the tragic. When you look at the story of the Old Testament and you get to that point with Solomon and the very next 
generation, Solomon's son, what happens? Kingdom divided. Kingdom divided. And it is the sad story then of the glory departing. Rather than serving as God's light to the nations, this chosen people would display more depravity than the peoples surrounding them. As a consequence, they must be rejected by God, exiled, returned to their place of origin beyond the river. So the question is, what does all this mean? What will happen to God's people? What will happen as a result of the exile? And what of the covenant promises that God has made to David, to Abraham, to Noah, and to Adam. Enter the prophets. This is the ministry of the prophets to stand before God's people and to declare to them what all of this means for them. They were called and commissioned to explain Israel's exile, future, and to call them to repentance. They were called and commissioned to write, to preserve the historical nature of the events. The events so that future generations would know this is what happens when you disobey God's covenant. When you violate God's covenant, Travis, God keeps his covenant with his people, doesn't he? You're going to get a sermon on that tonight. That even the exile itself is not God turning his back on his covenant. The exile itself is God keeping his covenant with his people. Let's come tonight. You'll hear a full sermon on that. Their ministries then, the prophets, was to inspire hope. God's redemptive purposes would continue there would be restoration after the exile, and there would be a more glorious day in which there would be a new covenant, a new Zion, a new temple, a new Messiah, and a new relation to the nations of the world. That is the historical setting for this corpus of literature in the scripture we call the prophets. So what was a prophet? I'm going to give our uh, Greek and Hebrew students in the room a chance to flex a little muscle here. In Hebrew, the word is what, Jonathan? Navi. Navi, which means spokesman or speaker or prophet. And it is used to describe genuine prophets, false prophets, or even the heathen prophets are given that title, Navi in the Hebrew Old Testament. Travis, how is that Greek word pronounced? Jonathan, what's the official ruling? Prophetes. You need to work on your pronunciation, Travis. Yeah, that's the, that's the, it's not wrong, it's just the Georgia version of Koine Greek. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In the New Testament, prophetes is used to describe 
A person inspired to proclaim or reveal divine will or purpose. Or it's used by metonymy in the New Testament where the name represents the writings. So like in Acts chapter 2, this is that uh, spoken by the prophet Joel or Joel said. What that's doing in the New Testament, it's referring to the writings of the person, right? We see this of Isaiah especially a lot in the New Testament. So as we begin to look at chapter 1, what O. Palmer Robertson does then is he takes on the neo-orthodoxy and the liberalism in the church that once that's trying to infect the church where they say, well, look, these prophets receiving these divine visions and God speaking to them and all this miraculous stuff is, is hogwash, the higher critics will say. And so what Dr. O. Palmer Robertson is doing is he is evaluating the various viewpoints, the various alternative explanations for how the ministry of the prophets got started. And so number one is it began, this the ecstatic behavior is the view that prophetism in Israel followed the developmental patterns similar to the phenomena among the Canaanites and in other regions. All right, so what they're saying is like, you know, the, the, the liberal scholars will say, well, look, the prophets in the Old Testament, they're just following the patterns of the other pagans and other Canaanites, and they just adopted those practices. And so they point to some of these uh, passages. Let's look at some of them. They point to someone like Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 19. I find this quite comical, by the way. Uh, and he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. This is King Saul. He's not king yet, but he'd been anointed king. And he, too, stripped off his clothes. Wait a minute, what's happening here? And he, too, prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? What were the prophets doing? Maybe I'm the only one. I find this very comical, right? Huh? A new, what? A, new, a nudist providence? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But so what the, the liberal scholars will say was, well, look, this is an example in Scripture of of them just adopting the Canaanite practices around them. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15. Ezekiel the prophet has this great vision. Um, you know, he sees the wheel, within the wheel, within a wheel turning and moving, and it's the throne of God. It's carried by the cherubim, and God's presence is mobile, is what Ezekiel learns. God's presence is not confined to Jerusalem only. That even in a pagan land while they're in exile, God's presence can go there too. That's how the book of Ezekiel begins. That's what that vision is saying. God's presence can move to and fro upon the earth. And when he has this vision, he says, And I came, there, I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. That's the result 
of his vision. He's just overwhelmed for a whole week. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into ecstasy, ecstasis, or into a trance, and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And here is the conclusion that Dr. O'Palmerson, O'Palmer Robertson reaches. Little support may be found for the idea that the biblical prophet lost anything in terms of mental acumen in the process of prophesying. So this whole nonsense that somehow they got in touch with a, you know, a magic mushroom or ayahuasca or whatever those psychedelic drugs are that Drew Brees, well, who's that quarterback who went off the Amazon and did, huh, Aaron Rodgers, yeah, uh, that, you know, uh, it's real popular right now, right, for people to do these psychedelics, and they claim they have these spiritual experiences, and they impose that framework upon the reading of the prophet's visions in the scripture, and what O. Palmer Robertson is saying is there's no indication that they lost their in mental acumen in the process of prophesying. Although I wonder about Saul in 1 Samuel 19. <laughs> Number two is the view that it evolved with the cultic practice. Cultic doesn't mean occult. It just means the formation and the structure and the government and the administration of worship at the temple. That's what we mean by cultic practices here. It's the view that the prophet, like the priest, was attached professionally to the worship centers in Israel, and thus the temple cult was the legitimate originator of the prophet. And so we see throughout Scripture some association between what is happening at the temple in Jerusalem and the prophets. So like in the book of Jeremiah, we read that there is a chamber in the temple for the prophets. We see in Second Chronicles that Jehaziel uh, is a Levite and he prophesies in the midst of the assembly um, that he spoke on behalf of the Lord. And what he surmises about this is that while it's clear from scripture that the prophets participated in the worship of the temple, there's not enough to say that the ministry of the prophets arose out of the temple. And some of the reasoning for that is that the prophets were often critical of the priests, weren't they? I mean, Travis has preached about this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, is, he is constantly condemning the priests, isn't he? Uh, furthermore, they're critical of the nation's spiritual apathy in their worship. The prophet oftentimes is. So he's not viewed as an extension of the priesthood, right? His ministry is separate and apart. And there's even been some speculation about other ancient Near Eastern prophecy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but you can kind of read through that uh, regarding the Mari and the Neo-Assyrian cultic practices. Um, there's just not strong evidence that the Old Testament prophets were connected in any way 
to the other ancient Near Eastern so-called prophets. So where did they come from? How did they originate? Here's what he says. That God's creative activity and his word of purpose equals the prophet's ministry. So God's creative activity, the word of his purpose, equals the prophet's ministry. Let me show this to you in some passages of Scripture. Amos chapter 4, verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So God is the creator of all the universe. He is separate and apart from his creation. Therefore, if his creation is going to know anything about the creator, what must he do? Reveal himself. He must condescend down to us, is what Amos is getting at here. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So God is the creator of all things, including mankind, and yet he speaks to his creation. In contrast, the idols, God is uncreated, the idols are created. God speaks, He's uncreated, and he speaks to his creation, and the idols are created beings, and they don't speak. And God mocks them in the scripture. Isaiah 44, verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. And then they're, then they're mocked in Isaiah chapter 44. And what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah is that, you take a log and you carve it and you make an idol from it and then from that same log you put it into your fire and use it to warm yourself and to cook yourself dinner. And he mocks them. What's the conclusion that he reaches? The prophets spoke on behalf of the Lord. They communicated the divine mind and will of the Lord. They have a privileged position and they declare, thus saith the Lord. They speak on behalf of the Lord. So let me ask this question, what is problematic with the view that there might be modern day prophets today? What's that, Michelle? The canon is closed. Okay, we have everything we need. What else? What would there be to prophesy about? Yeah, so what would they be what would that prophet be prophesying? about. Sure. Yeah, what else? Victor. Victor? 
It's all extra biblical, yeah. So if you affirm that there are modern day prophets who say, thus saith the Lord, and then prophesy, what must you also affirm? The, the canon is open. Absolutely right. So those in Pentecostal movements who say, look, there's modern day prophets, they stand and declare the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, but we also affirm that scripture is closed. Those two viewpoints are inconsistent because throughout scripture, the prophets declare infallibly the mind and will of the Lord. And when they speak, it is the Lord speaking to his people. Any other thoughts? No? All right, let's continue. Let's look at the time and history of the prophets in Israel. I'm going to go in reverse, okay? Where did this originate from? In Hosea and Amos, they attest to the activity of the prophets before their time. All right, so Hosea and Amos are later in Israel's history, and they affirm that they were prophets before their time. There are prophets who predate Elisha, Elijah, and Samuel. How does 1 Samuel open up? 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Wait a minute. Was Samuel a prophet? Yes, Samuel was a prophet, right? But 1 Samuel opens up with the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There weren't many visions there were no frequent visions so that must mean then that at some point there was the word of the lord spoken through a mediator hosea chapter 12 verse 13 calls moses a prophet by a prophet the lord brought israel up from egypt and by a prophet he was guarded isn't that interesting Right, so Moses then, even though he's from the tribe of Levi and he acts in a priestly function, Moses' ministry is primarily that of a prophet. Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham all received personal revelations that were in turn communicated to God's people. Hosea chapter 12, 4 through 5. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Who's that a reference to? Jacob. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God in Bethel, and there God spoke with Jacob. Isn't that interesting, right? There God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name, right? So here's Jacob. He has this Theophany, or he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, and he receives communication directly from the Lord. But the prophet Hosea looks back on that and says, that was a communication for us. Isn't that interesting? The prophet then functions as a gracious mediator. Think about my, Mount Sinai, the theophany at Mount Sinai, the thunder, the lightning, the smoke. Abraham goes up. God's glory comes down. No person can touch the mountain or come upon the mountain or approach the mountain in any way, shape, or form. God's voice 
booms, and what do the Israelites do? They cower. They run in fear. They hide. And so, in Exodus 20, and it's also, it's restated in Deuteronomy 5, they go to Moses and they say what? Rob, don't let God come near us. We don't want God to speak to us because why? What will happen? We'll die. If we have to communicate with God, we will die. So Moses, you go for us and you talk to God and then you come tell us what God says. And we will promise to obey what the Lord tells you to do. Right. Sure you will. That didn't work out so well, did it? Rather than cause the same dream, vision, or theophany to occur simultaneously to 600,000 heads of families, God would speak to the whole nation through a single human, through Moses. Rather than give a copy of the Ten Commandments to 600,000 families, God gave them to Moses to give to the people as a mediator. And Moses, in turn, in Deuteronomy 18, promises what? There's going to be another prophet. Or is it prophets? Prophets or prophet. There'll be another prophet to come. Or there'll be more prophets to come. Stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to it here in just a minute. Five insights, then, about prophecy from the biblical testimony. Number one is the awesomeness of the role being fulfilled, right? One small, frail, fragile man speaking on behalf of the Lord. How gracious and kind of the Lord to choose to reveal himself that way. He didn't have to do that. He could have said at Mount Sinai, no. If you want any sort of communication from me, you be absolutely perfect, the whole bunch of you, or die. But he didn't do that. Number two, the origin of the truly prophetic word must not be sought in the subjective experience of the prophet. The prophetic word originated from God and substituted for his presence. It is God's word and God's presence mediated through a person. That's what it is. And so we're not to find the origin of their prophecy in their ecstatic experience or vision or dream or whatever it was. The origin of that prophecy is God condescending himself down to his people to reveal himself to his people through a prophetic mediator. Number three, the word of the prophet does not primarily involve predictions regarding future events. We often think about that. We impose that definition on the prophets. We think, oh, well, to prophesy means to tell about the future. Did the prophets tell about the future? Sure, they did. Absolutely. What is the majority of their ministry, though? Forthtelling, right? I compare them to they are God's prosecuting attorneys, is what they are. 
They bring the evidence and say, here's how you violated God's law. Repent and return to the Lord. That is their primary ministry. Because of the uniqueness of the prophetic ministry, the nation of Israel must be seen as having a distinctive role among all the peoples of the earth. They're special. They are. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was privileged. They had a privileged status before God. Why? Because God had chosen them as a people to reveal himself to. Paul mentions this in Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with what? The prophetic word of God. The oracles of God. As great as the office of the prophetic mediator may appear, it cannot represent the way the ultimate purpose of God's covenant is realized. And here's why. So long as God's people need a prophet to mediate God's presence and word to them, the full promises of the covenant cannot be realized. So go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve walk in fellowship with God, unhindered. They have fellowship with God. God walks with them, and they communicate. Sin comes, and they are ashamed, and they fear the Lord, and death enters into the story. And from that time, moving forward, God's people constantly need a mediator to have any sort of communication with God. God must mediate his word directly to his people himself, or there cannot be true fellowship and the covenant cannot be fulfilled. You understand the point that he's making here, right? God must do this himself. God's people must have direct fellowship and communion with God in order for God's covenant to be fulfilled. So we're hopeless, aren't we? No, we're not hopeless. John chapter 1 teaches us Jesus is the greater theophany. The Word, notice the intentional use there, the Word, the Word of the Lord that came to the prophets, Jesus is that Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that awesome? Now, the presence in the word of the Lord is mediated directly by God himself to his people in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only greater than any theophany, he's greater than the prophetic oracles. Hebrews chapter 1, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So notice again, we're going back to God's creative purposes, God's speaking purposes and revealing himself equals the ministry of the prophet. And that is the ministry of Jesus. And so in Hebrews 12, 25, we are commanded not to refuse him who is speaking. It's a reference to Jesus. He speaks to us and we are not to refuse him who is speaking. Jesus, likewise, is greater than all the prophetic mediators. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So how does this teaching lead us to the end of special revelation and the closed canon of Scripture? What do you think? That, yeah, if there was more revelation, more scripture, it had to be something greater than Jesus. Yeah. But the perfect has come. Yeah, Victor. Yes. Yeah, they would become the mediator. They're treated as those who are put on a pedestal as prophets who perform signs, wonders, and miracles supposedly are put on a pedestal that they are seen as a mediator. And so what people in those ministries do is put themselves under that anointing, they will say, so that they can get the blessings that flow down through those supposed prophets. Isn't that interesting? Same thing Rome does too. Yeah, yeah. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect revelation that you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. May his word be effectual to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.